Welcome to Pacific Mammal Research's Marine Mammal Highlight Series. We are a 501c3 research and education nonprofit studying marine mammals in the Salish Sea off Washington State. In this series, you will learn about different marine mammals as we discuss interesting facts about each species. This is our way to geek out, share some information, and have some fun. We hope you enjoy the series and be sure to follow us on Instagram to vote for which animal we talk about next. And without further ado, Welcome to the Pac-Man Podcast. I'm Cindy. And I'm Kat. And this week we had the Battle of the Pygmies. Um, and so it was the battle of between the pygmy sperm whale and the pygmy right whale for this marine mammal highlight. Uh, and surprisingly, I think we both thought that the sperm whale was going to win. Totally thought that was going to win. Because yeah. it's really cool looking. Like, well, I mean, we'll get to that one at some point. But like, yeah, definitely thought that one was going to win. Yeah, and I, I've actually, I actually got to do, a, a, well, it helps euthanize and then do a necropsy on a pygmy sperm whale. Oh wow! Yeah, so that'll be cool when we get to talk about it. Yeah, um, but the right, the pygmy right whale went out, and I think Kat and I were talking, and um, I, we both think that maybe it was because people were like, "What? There's a pygmy right whale?" And I, I was also kind of like that, like, "Wait, what?" Uh-huh. <laughs> so <laughs> I think curiosity went out for that one. <laughs> Yeah, um, for sure. But so this, uh, spoiler alert, um, we don't know a lot about this species. And I have a quote from the American Cetacean Society on their webpage, and this really sums it up. Information about this whale is sketchy at best. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. That's the title of the podcast right there. Yep. Sketchy, it's sketchy. at best. Um, since only a few dozen stranded specimens have been examined by scientists and very rarely seen at sea, which we'll talk about. But um, so this one's going to be a, a little bit shorter, although I do have some pretty cool and interesting um, new research stuff that's going on. Um, but then we're going to have a bonus animal for you uh, afterwards, because in the realm of, of looking at these different pygmy whales, uh, we came across one that was uh, even more weird than this one. So uh, we're going to give you a little bonus animal on this one. And then maybe answer a, a uh, listener question at the end. So with that, we'll get started and Kat will tell us what we know about where these guys are and what they look like, even though we barely ever saw <laughs> Right, exactly. Well, and actually it's surprising because there was quite a good level of description in terms of what they look like. So we obviously know enough about what they look like that it was a pretty extensive um, appearance description. So let's start there. <laughs> <laughs> that's what helps with the strandings like you can literally see like really study the animal that helps that's true that's true so basically although the the picking right whales are classified in with the other right whales so the northern and southern right whales and the bowheads but they really only have one thing in common and that is the shape of the mouth so the upper jaw is arched so again think bowhead whale right that's the most pronounced kind of arch in that upper jaw and the lower jaw is bowed out so that basically kind of that sort of weird uh, combo is unique to these particular species. And it does say that the the particular bowing of that lower jaw seems to become more pronounced with age. Um, so that's something we can presumably use to guesstimate the age of the animal as well. Um, this their, lower jaw- their mouths look really fun, like the bowhead and the right whales. Like it's just this big giant frown. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does for sure. And we, you know, we did our bowhead episode, like that's that like learning about the, the, the head structure so go listen to that episode because it's awesome it's so fascinating anyway 
we're not talking about bowheads today. Bringing myself back in. Um, so this lower jaw does extend slightly beyond that upper jaw. So they have a little bit of an underbite there. Um, and they have two, dis- uh, two like grooves basically um, on the throat, which are similar to the throat grooves in a gray whale. So it's kind of lengthways in, in that throat. And it's, it does say indistinct. So presumably they're not as prominent as in some other whales. Um, yeah, we're looking at the pictures. I didn't really notice them. Yeah. yeah. So apparently that's, again, that's more of a physiological feature, but it's not necessarily as pronounced as some of the other baleen whales. And um, I'm going to put a, I'm going to put a pin on that. Cause when we talk about the research, there's, it, that's going to make sense as to why they have some um, forms that are more like gray whales or more like, the you know that those kind of whales versus the right whales and okay yeah okay we'll get there (laughs) um so this whale in contrast to some of the other ones that we've just talked about this does have a small head so again tying into the pygmy right whale name takes up only a quarter of its total body length which to me seems still really big (laughs) big. (laughs) in proportion to like a bowhead whale fair enough um the the blow for this animal is small and not very noticeable which goes into partly why they're so difficult to see because typically especially with these larger baleen whales we are most often noticing the blow first um sticking with their mouths for a little bit more here talking about the baleen plates so there are 210 to 230 baleen plates on each side of the pygmy right whale's upper jaw so again like weirdly specific because we have that stranding data like this right? it's odd where like there's some really specific details in here but we don't really know anything yeah we know a lot about um, this but nothing else <laughs> right so it's yeah it's really interesting and the baleen plates for these guys are kind of that yellowish color with a dark brown band on the edge of the baleen plates which so quite distinctive which is pretty cool i heard it, it uh, termed it was creamy like a creamy white I was like, oh that's a fun yeah right like yeah kind of like a, like a beigey creamy mm-hmm. white color interesting um these baleen plates can get up to about 27 inches long and are thought to be more flexible and stronger than those of any other species of baleen whale really yeah which is kind of fascinating so i don't know why that is but they don't feed on anything different as far as we know than everybody else does so these guys are these guys are kind of kind of crazy yeah. Well, that's, that is for sure. <laughs> more about that. Who knows? I feel like a lot of what we're going to be saying is like, that's weird. Who knows yep. why? Uh-huh. Just, just be prepared, everyone. Yes. Um, <laughs> so moving on to other areas of their, of their appearance beyond just their mouth. So in terms of length, again, we are talking about a pygmy animal. So these guys are about 20 feet-ish in length. The largest known female pygmy right whale was recorded at 21 feet. Um, so it seems like their males are slightly smaller than females, but it's right around that sort of 18 to 20 foot range. Mm-hmm. Um, weight has been estimated at about five tons for them. Um, so again, they're small in relation to other right whale species, not necessarily right. small in the grand scheme of things, but they are smaller. Right. Um, that's what you're doing. it's the at- smallest of the baleen whale species. That's all relative. It's still pretty big. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So in terms of seeing them, you know, if you were lucky enough to get to see them in the wild, what they look like, they are a dark gray on their upper side of the body. Um, Apparently that gets darker and darker as they age. And the underside of the body is white. So again, very similar coloring to a lot of other baleen species. They have that darker color on top, the lighter color underneath. Um, They do have two distinct chevrons on the side of the body. So they're they're kind of stripes, um, but known as chevrons. And 
they have a smaller dorsal fin, uh, which is located about two thirds of the way back on the body. Um, one of the cool things too, is that the flippers are apparently considerably darker than the rest of the body and are smaller and narrower than um, other species. So that was kind of interesting. So they have little sort of T-Rex flippers that are darker. <laughs> I always just, whenever they say smaller, but then proportionally to the rest of the body, I just think of T-Rex hands it and then I can go back. Yeah, I go there too. <laughs> Um, I know I was going to, to Rex from Toy Story where he can't play the, the game because his arms are too short. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, slightly smaller and darker uh, flippers. And interesting, again, something that we know from these stranded animals is their skeletal structure. So apparently they have 17 pairs of broad, flat ribs, which are more than any other baleen whale as well. They're packing a lot into this little animal. Right. And so, like, apparently they extend two thirds of the way back the body. So it's like two thirds of the length towards the towards the tail. So huh. we'll put a pin in this too because I know you're going to talk about it. But they they have flagged this. Some scientists have flagged this as potential evidence for suggesting they should be in their own family. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll put a pin in that because I know we're yeah. going to circle back to that at, when we get closer to the end. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what they look like. Again, darker on top, lighter underneath. Those kind of chevron stripes on the side, little tiny tiny flippers that are dark small indistinct blow and in terms of where you might happen to see these guys they're found in the southern hemisphere um in temperate water sightings occur very rarely mm -hmm. very rarely but if you are likely to see them it's in tasmania year round mm -hmm. um seasonally along parts of southern australia new zealand south africa the falkland islands and some areas of antarctica so basically the southern hemisphere is yeah. what we're seeing it's kind of kind of all over that those temperate waters of the southern hemisphere but again highly unlikely to actually see them yes uh and i'll have add one more thing about their looks is that many reported sightings are likely incorrectly identified as minky whales because the small size dark color curved dorsal fin it's almost impossible to tell them apart at the surface so we may actually be seeing these guys more than we think and just assuming that they're minky whales or vice versa or vice versa okay yeah. interesting there yeah. we go. So, and so that's what I have for their, their you know, visuals and distribution. <laughs> so I guess it, I was like, all right, so it's like a minky, just a little bit smaller. <laughs> and you can't tell the difference. <laughs> but again, like looking at pictures, it makes total sense as to why it would be so difficult to tell these guys apart, especially at a distance or in the, I mean, really, you would have to see, you would have to see their, their rostrum, like their, their, yeah. their face, because that, that's the way you would be able to tell, I would assume, because minkies have a very unique and distinctive rostrum shape. So yeah. And but I think I saw in some of the, in a couple of the places that the one behavior that they tend to do is stick their rostrum out of the water a little bit. Oh, almost so, like, like a spy hopping kind of? Not or? a spy hop because they don't do that. <laughs> okay. Okay. But it's something like where I forgot what they were talking about because it, it wasn't, you didn't see it on, on multiple places. So I wasn't sure, you know, mm. how sure we were again with any of this, but yeah, um, that was something that kept popping up here and there that they, they will stick their nose out. Uh, at the surface, but it's not a full spy hop or anything like that. Okay, interesting. Might, might mm -hmm. have been with their surfacing or something. I'm not sure, but anyway. Right. So they're there. That is something that could help to differentiate at the surface. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah. So with that, we'll move into the diet and behavior, which is going to be interesting, <laughs> but not that long. Um. Because they really, literally, they've only been seen. You know, they've reported a few sightings um in the actual water and almost everything that we know comes from strandings right the, mm. even on some of the research that i'm going to talk about later 
it'll be like nine sightings and then 190 strandings that they're wow. using for their data. So interesting. We we don't know a lot about their actual behavior. Um, we do know that they eat their. I mean, they're filter feeders just like all the other baleen whales. So copepods, small euphosids. Um, but they did find some stranded individuals with krill. So probably take some of that as well. Uh, and they're likely skim feeders, um, not um, not lungers and like like compact whales. Okay. So the skim like right whales are. They just kind of on the surface. Mm -hmm. uh, skim feed. Uh, and that goes along with their dive patterns. Um, they are, um, they dive and remain submerged for up to four minutes. That's like, that's like the max that they do. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's Interesting. not very long. <laughs> yeah. Um, which makes sense if they're skin feeders, they're not really going to be diving that, that much. And, you know, I guess maybe if they have that many ribs too, they don't have to worry about diving deep. <laughs> you know, especially the problems. Um, and so, and again, this, this is all with a little asterisk, you know, like max has been four minutes, but there's been relatively few sightings. So is that a true indication of how long they dive? We don't know, but we'll throw the information that we have. Um, so they're again, rarely seen at sea. They are the, the smallest of the baleen whale species. And this is where I got in trouble once because I thought the minke whale was the smallest. Um, and technically it's the smallest we have here in the Salish Sea. But somebody, one mm. of my friends was like, oh, just so you know, the pygmy right whale. And I was like, what's pygmy right whale? <laughs> uh, is the actual smallest. Um, so from what we know, they are solitary or travel in pairs. Um, but they ha uh, are, have been seen in small groups of <laughs> small groups of up to 80. I'm not really sure how that constitutes a small group. Um, but that's the word. Yeah, that seems like a big group, especially yeah. when we don't normally see them. Like that right. seems... If they're only in one or two, how is it 80 a small group? But, and especially for baleen whales, you don't normally see baleen whales in groups of 80 unless they're, you know, on the reproductive grounds or whatever. Right. Huh. Um, so anyway, I had in, in, in parentheses, small question mark, question mark. <laughs> so they're, I, I, again, kind of similar to porpoises where, you know, we see them alone or in groups of one to two or three, but occasionally we see them in groups of hundreds, you know, 100, 100 to 200. Mm -hmm. So kind of a similar idea. Um, and as far as it is known, they don't do all any of the typical whale behaviors, as Kat kind of mentioned before, like breaching, spy hop, showing flukes, like fluke up diving. Again, probably because they're not diving very far, and they don't really need to fluke up to, to do that. Um, sure. So interesting that they're like this weird, well, they're, they're really weird species. <laughs> it's just like, we're not going to do anything like anybody else at all. Um, and really cool, they did have... Uh, at least one underwater observation of one animal Ooh. revealed an entirely different swimming technique. <gasps> what? Yeah. yeah. No so, way. Yeah. So instead of like most, most marine mammal or most cetaceans, um, they just move the tail area and the flukes, right? So the peduncle area and the flukes are the thing that move. These guys flex the entire body in waves of motion from head to tail to move through the water. It's like a They're doing the worm. They're doing yeah, the they're worm. doing the worm they're in the, the water. The what yeah that's wild bonkers why i don't know like it's not like would that, have to, like, would that have to do with those extra ribs where they have less flexibility at the back of the body so they have to like undulate the, the whole, whole body to make that because it's less flexible in that back yeah. i have so many questions i know well that's that's the wow the episode. it's gonna be more and more questions 
that's I had no idea that's so cool I know and, and and that's the thing like hey we don't know much we don't know much and then we know this one really weird thing like whoa what's going on <laughs> why are you doing this like why are you different than literally every other whale on the planet well and like you said before that's one isolated incident so it's like was that even is that even it was an injured animal is that just one injured animal and we've only ever seen that one injured animal under the water and maybe that's why it was able to be observed like who knows yeah wow that's crazy. so crazy so I'm hoping they find more cool. observations because I want to know if this is like a normal That thing is super cool. Um, so let's see. They they have swimming speeds of three to eight knots and uh, that have been noted. And uh, they leave a conspicuous wake when doing so, which I thought was interesting. Mm. You don't really think okay. of whales leading wakes. But but if they're swimming funny, this, right? that would create more more turbulence in the water. Yeah, because if, if you're like doing their entire this, body. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Makes Ooh. sense. Yeah. So many <laughs> these, guys, these guys are so weird <laughs> oh this is so cool yeah um okay so i think that's all i have for the behavior and then reproduction is gonna be real short okay so <laughs> there's no information we have no idea yeah. what they do how often they do it they just basically say like well if there are other like other right whales or whatever you know um which although again this isn't a right whale it's kind of a misnomer um which we'll talk about more in a little bit uh, but they ha- there have been a few fre- pregnant females that have stranded in shallow waters um, that may indicate that they move to the shallow coastal areas to give birth. Um, but there is some evidence that they move inshore in spring and summer, regardless of anything else, mm, um, likely okay. for food, um, you know, food changes and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, and when they're inshore, they seek out shelter in shallow bays. So huh. that's all I got. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Um, Wow. And they don't know, I don't think they'd even, you know, they don't don't know how often they give birth or how long gestation is or anything else. So, um, makes sense. Yeah. Because we just have barely seen them. And there's only so much with that that we can get from strandings. Cause if you don't get, you know, they've had some pregnant females that are stranded, but do we have one from each, you know, first trimester or second trimester, like, you know, if it's 11 month gestation, do we have it all the way through? Or we've only gotten ones that are early pregnancy. So we don't really know exactly mm-hmm. what that looks like. So, yeah. Um, so that's it for behavior intervention. They're really weird. Um, and we don't know too much about them. Um, so we're going to take a quick break and then we'll come back to the threats and the status, which will be real short as well. Um, but, but I have some cool stuff with the new research. So we will be back in just a minute after a quick break. All right, we're back. And Kat's going to tell us really quickly about their status and threats. Super short. So basically we are data deficient. We don't know enough to know what sort of status these guys have in our in our waters. Populations past or present are not known. So basically we have no idea what their former numbers were, what their current numbers are, and therefore, again, typically that just means you are data deficient in the IUCN red list of endangered species. So in terms of threats, Again, because we don't really know anything about them, we don't really know what their threats are. However, that in itself can be a threat, right? Because we have such little understanding of these animals, we really have no idea how we are impacting them, how the environmental changes that are occurring are impacting them, how their their food sources are doing. So we don't have any specific threats for these guys, but that in itself is a threat because <laughs> if we don't know anything, we have no way to conserve or manage or protect or, or even learn more about specific things that we know impact them. So right. um, a little bit concerning in that respect, because we really have no clue how these guys are doing. Um, 
but that's it. That's what we got. <laughs> we don't know, basically. Don't know. Short answer. We don't know. We, we've not seen them. We barely see them. And we don't know. And I think um, since they do live down more in some bullet temperate and some cooler waters, you know, climate change might be a bit more of an issue for them than other species, as we've talked about before. But yeah, basically the threat is that we don't know anything. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Which is a big threat. That's yeah. that's a big problem. So. Um, and these guys are so freaking cool. Okay. So... I was like, oh, there's not going to be that much after going through the big diet and behavior on new research, right? Because um, we've had that with other animals where they're like, there's nothing too recent, or at least that I could find. Um, but there's actually some very interesting things. And it just asks, makes people ask more questions. <laughs> oh, this guy. So um, they, in a 2013 study by Fordyce and Marks, um, this called The Last of the Cetithers. So... They were using um, a New Zealand specimens. So that a lot of this, like, since they're over by that way, uh, a fair amount, uh, a lot of the specimens come from there. Um, so they looked at a lot of different life stages. So they looked at the morphology, right? The morphology is the shape of what it, what, what, what it looks like. Um, and basically what they came down to is that the, the, the their body, um, maybe the, the, these guys may be the last survivor of a supposedly extinct family the Cetotheridae. Um, it was hmm. thought to go extinct about 2 million years ago. Um, and right now they're in their own family, the Neobalunidae, right? And again, as we talked about before, they're kind of, they're called the pygmy right whale. The one thing they have in common is the, that, the, the bowing of the mouth, um, but nothing else really makes them fit as a right whale. Uh, so they have them in their own family. So this is very interesting that they thought this family was extinct, but now looking at the morphological stuff, they actually think that they should be part of that. So this is the only extant, meaning living, um, member of that family. Now that was in 2013, but when you look at all the uh, taxonomy and everything, it still says today. So I don't think that they, uh, right. Haven't changed it yet. Perhaps right? they haven't uh, you know, agreed to that, I guess. <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, but it's an interesting question. Um, and so then also linking to that, um, in 2015, there was another uh, one, basically that these guys might be the missing link um, for uh, finding ancestor descendant relationships. So mm. um, they are, we're always trying to find the missing link, right? Of like this ancestor and this descendant, right? That they look, you think that they're related, but we don't have the one that has the intermediate features between the two, right? We don't have that mm. fossil, right? Um, that's the same thing for when you're looking for human evolution and all sorts of animals. Like how did we get from there to there? And we have a lot of ones in between, but sometimes there's a big jump. <laughs> like where does that connect? Um, and um, so they used the only reported fossil, only a... Uh, and compared with extant juvenile and adult specimens. Um, I, I, did, I didn't write that down well. Um, they, they looked at the, uh, one specific fossil that they had, and then they looked at these uh, juvenile and adult specimens. And the fossil was phylogenetically in between the juvenile and the adult living specimens. Or extant ones, not living. Okay, so the fossil of the pygmy right whale yeah. fell in between the juvenile and the adult pygmy right whale specimens that we have from now right and so Interesting. That, that, that kind of thing is like so the juvenile still has some of the old you know and you, and you were talking about how their jaw changes in shape a little bit as they get older um so there's something about the the difference in morph morphology between juveniles and adults that that 
helps us kind of understand evolution of how things have changed. So the fact that the fact that this fossil was in between those two makes them think that that was the that might be the missing link for this um, species. Mm, interesting. Forward. Yeah, because there, there, that and that one was talking about looking at you know because originally there was tooth you know tooth and then they went to baleen. So where is that connection? Um, and so this is possibly the first identified with baleen whales for a wow. that, that missing link ancestor dependent descendant relationship. Cool. So very cool. Um, <clears throat> let's see the next one I have. So um, this one's from 2017 and a lot of these are from the same, there's like three names that keep popping up uh, that are doing research on the pygmy right whales. Uh, and these guys looked that they noted that there's unusual specializations of pygmy right whales in the visual pigments, the mitochondrial tRNAs, and the postcranial anatomy, like the back of the head, basically, uh, that suggest a different lifestyle from other extant whales, right? I mean, we've talked about that because they seem to not do anything like any other whale. <laughs> um, and um, so they found two new Pleistocene fossils, so a certain time back in the past, that provide evidence that there was a brief and relatively recent period in geological history where they were they occurred in the northern hemisphere mm, yeah interesting so and i'll get to one in just a second that even confirms that more um they had the and then uh and actually right now so that was the fossil but then in 2018 um they had the first stranding record of an actual stranded animal in the northern hemisphere the wow mm -hmm. so huh. Um, and unfortunately they couldn't get this, the, the actual animal, but they didn't have photos from the marine mammal program that took, you know, took those photos and whatever, took good enough photos that they could identify it as a pygmy right whale. So they, it, for, in all the other things, it's like, oh, it's just been the Southern hemisphere. Like that's just where they are. They're nowhere else. But now there's this, again, weird, <laughs> you're totally in the Southern hemisphere, but uh, maybe you weren't and maybe you're not now. Like, hmm, that's interesting. So where they were and are is still up to some debate. Hmm. Cool. Um, so we have another one by Kemper. There's two, these two studies are by Kemper and they were looking at Austral, Australasian region um, of the area, looking at the, where, where these guys are. So again, nine sightings, 180 carcasses, so heavily hmm. on the stranding. Um, but they did find that the regions differed with what age class was more abundant. So pre-weaning juveniles were found more north of 41 degrees. Um, south of that, subadults were more prominent, and neonates were found between 35 and 47 degrees. So there does seem to be oh. some stratification of age class. Uh, yeah. they, are. Uh, they did see feeding behavior observed in the coastal waters of Australia, which is kind of what it's called. Um, and then they did opportunistic sightings in 2013 and 196 strandings looking from 1984 to 2007, very long time. Um, and they found hotspots of where, basically where all, you know, most of them strand. Um, and these hotspots accounted for 61% of the records. Uh, wow. And these were all the hotspots had upwelling and or high zooplankton abundance. Mm, okay. Makes sense, right. You know, it's yep. a good place to eat. The whales are going to be there. Uh, the whales occurred in all months, but 75% of the time in the spring and summer. So again, likely that they're coming in in the spring and summer to feed on these upwelling events. Mm -hmm. um, and they did note that upwelling and productivity likely uh, quickly are, are beneficial. So the species like these um, for during climatic phenomena, 
So like when it's a bad El Nino year, these types of events are going to be even more important for these animals. Mm -hmm. So again, just linking that, like we need to know more about these kind of things to know how to protect them. Yeah. Um, the, in 2020, there's one in 2022. I was very excited to see that. Like, ooh, very recent by Tanaka et al. And they uh, were looking at the skimming behavior, feeding by skimming. And they looked at the rostrum morphologies to test the hypothesis that specific morphologies facilitate special feeding strategies. So they looked at a lot of different species morphologies. Um, or actually, no, they just, they looked at the right whale and the pygmy right whale. So they wanted to, to compare those two. Um, and they what they and they and they looked at I believe they looked at other ones as well. But for for the pygmy right whale, they compared it with the right whale, and found that they both shifted to skim feeding um, from ancestors that likely did lunch feeding uh, independently. So again, oh, okay. kind of going back to like that these guys are different than right whales. They're not mm-hmm. a, a lineage broken off from them. Yeah. Um, so, so, and that I had that little note, does this go along with the fact that they are similar, but in different families? <laughs> Possibly. Yeah. Um, in 2017, Park et al. looked at the inner ear cochlea. It's the first time they've ever looked at that. So it's a structure inside your inner ear. Um, and they have large and, and they're very large and sensitive to low frequency sounds, but the hearing limit is relatively high. So they are sensitive to the low, but they can hear much higher than we would have thought um and so this goes back to if they are supposed to be as a a, a balinid which is the right head and the bowhead whales if they're supposed to be with that group or are they are they more like the balinopterids which are your work walls like humpbacks and things like that and gray whales um and so the from the inner ear the well-developed tympanal recess links it stronger with the the cetotherids right the one that i talked about before the ex supposedly extinct family um and the balaenopterids the rock walls and the gray whales rather than the balanids which are the right and the whales so despite the mm -hmm. fact that they morphologically look like bowhead and right whales to some degree they have a lot of more things in common with either the that extant family uh, extinct family or other the balaenopterids wow weird so again, weird we don't really <laughs> yeah they don't really fit in no they're, they're they're the complete misfit i think is what we're yeah really yeah um uh and then the last one i have is from 2018 worth at all um and this was looking at uh how 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 the filtration works on different um baleen species and stuff like that um they looked at the functional morphology and hydrodynamics of the filtering apparatus aka the baleen of 10 different species and they found that this is this is really cool they had a balanid type filter from a 2d analysis so it looks like the right whale okay. whale when you look at it 2d but if you look at enhanced 3d modeling it shows the baleen filter fits better with the four falls weird mm -hmm. so, so they, they have like a, right, a like they, they kind of they, they're straddling almost yeah. these two different different types of whale fascinating yeah. so they have like the mouth of the of the of the right head bow whales but then everything inside it and other parts of them are much more like the other species of whales hmm. yeah so these guys cool. are super weird and super cool and there's so many more questions and um, they do seem like they're straddling the two worlds which is mm -hmm. really really interesting so yeah um, it'll be neat as we get better about being able to be out in those open ocean areas and maybe being able to find them maybe drones are going to be able to help with that some you know some yeah um could be really, really cool. 
Um, that's a surprising amount of research on them though given that we see them so rarely that's actually that's a lot more than i was expecting there's other species that are much more commonly known or easier to access that have less research than than that that, the amount that i found there so yeah that's fascinating um, i mean maybe that's more it's more on there because of that right they're like well let's get as much as we can from these strandings true true but very cool so yeah, the little piggy have, right whale, the little misfit of the band. I have one fun fact Ooh, before yay. we before we'll we close name. out about the pygmy right whale. So yeah, we got the name. So their Latin name is Caparia marginata. Caparia means wrinkle in Latin, which refers to the wrinkled appearance of the ear bone. Oh. While marginata translates to enclosed with a border, referring to the dark border around the baleen plate. So that some individuals have that kind of darker. Oh, completely named on the baleen. And well, yeah. And they, and the, the ear, yeah, the ear yeah. bone. That's weird. Isn't and that crazy? Since that one study was the first time they looked at the inner ear. Well, I mean, it couldn't, it, that was looking at the cochlea, but it, I mean, who knows what the mm. other inner ear bones they were, you know, there's probably mm. just one that somebody found on the beach when they found a stranded animal and was like, that looks yeah. weird. It's all wrinkly. There you go. <laughs> oh, they Those were right, Latin because name. it probably is really weird compared to everybody else. That <laughs> seems to be the MO for these so guys. So that's their, that's their Latin name. Kind of fun. Awesome. Well, that's what we have yeah. for the uh, the superly awesome and weird pygmy right whale. Um, Kat has a uh, has a short little thing that she's going to tell us about a pygmy thin whale because we were looking yeah. and this one seems weird in a different way. Yeah. So right, switching gears a little bit here, <laughs> but staying on this theme of misfits. So there is apparently such a thing as a pygmy fin whale. However, it has not yet been genetically substantiated. So this was something that was um, apparently reported in like 1865 by a guy called Burmeister who proposed a new species of whale. Is that the um, Burmeister porpoise guy? It might be. I'm assuming it's probably yeah. the same the same guy. I, I'm not 100% sure, but I would guess. Yeah, there's so, a Burmeister porpoise, so it would make sense. Yeah. That would make sense. It's an unusual name. Yeah. Um, so in that so he basically initially proposed this as a new species which of course then it was plopped you know plopped under the rest of the fin whale families um so there are there are currently four subspecies of fin whale that are considered valid so we have the north atlantic fin whale i'm not going to do the latin names because it gets extensive but the north atlantic (laughs) fin whale the north pacific fin whale and then um two different subspecies including this pygmy subspecies are found in the southern hemisphere okay? okay so Again, this was first proposed in 1865, and then um, a guy named Clark proposed the pygmy as a subspecies in a 2004 paper. So that seems to be kind of when this first was initiated as a subspecies of the fin whales. Um, That was based on basically one physically mature female, which was caught in the Antarctic in like 1947 or something. a physically mature, some physically physically mature fin whales caught by the Japanese, and some smaller, darker, sexually immature fin whales caught in the Antarctic, which were proposed as basically a migratory phase. So effectively, we have like a handful of these that we've maybe seen ever. Um, the what they call the type specimen, so the animal that was used as that first initial uh, distinguisher as a, as a different animal, is um, currently in a natural history museum in Argentina. Um, that was that was a stranding. Um, and so basically this has kind of just been assumed to be a subspecies for a long time, but we basically have never seen it again. 
<laughs> so it's 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 apparently it's apparently short smaller than the other fin whale species so 18 to 24 meters with darker coloration so when you google it and you look at pictures it's basically like a small dark fin whale right. Right. um reportedly with black baleen which is super cool it is right cool. yeah um, and one of the important distinguishers is that it seems to have been restricted to low to mid latitudes in the southern hemisphere. So that kind of has, is also kind of spatially what has distinguished it in, in the literature anyway from other from the other southern hemisphere subspecies. Mm-hmm. However, aside from this original description and then Clark's proposition in 2004 to make this a subspecies, there's basically no other known specimens that have been positively identified as pygmy fin whales for morphological comparison. Hmm. So does it exist? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it was this a misnomer in the first place? Was this something that existed and now no longer exists or it's so rare that we can't find it? Is this, I love this phrasing, is this in fact a delinquent juvenile which I love delinquent that. Like, that's juvenile. A, isn't that love awesome? Delin- delinquent juvenile of the other southern hemisphere species, which mm-hmm. subspecies, which has been studied and, and found repeatedly. So basically what I found, which was really interesting, is that several genetic studies are basically saying anything we could find suggests that there really is just the one, sub- one southern hemisphere subspecies genetically. Okay um they even even when these would would just be like a weirdo specimens from some weird right maybe maybe a weird morph maybe a weird life you know again delinquent juvenile life stage that they're just (laughs) like they but but again odd that they would look so vastly different visually in these in these records but like if you look up like i think it was is it common the common dolphin there's there's like 30 different morphs color morphs of Mm -hmm. the same species so and there's right. and, and that's a that's an extreme case like and there's uh, one of our uh, colleagues did a, a a picture of all the different morphs they have and it's it's a poster it's amazing like yeah they look like completely different species to some degree um, and so not every species has that many but there are quite a few that have these different color morphs and yeah like they're not necessarily different species they're just slightly different variations well and even thinking about a little bit more tangible example but like we have things called white tigers. They're unusual. They are still considered to be a tiger, but they're on, you know, these, we kind of have these weird, um, these animals that have like weird pigmentation sometimes that just pop out as a genetic anomaly. And so again, because these have been so infrequently found and basically are completely unsubstantiated at this point, because we really have, I mean, aside from that original animal that's preserved and then these other kind of handful of reports, we have no evidence that this exists even. So were those just weird morphs of the, the known southern hemisphere subspecies mm-hmm. um possibly so basically that was that was just kind of cool to to read about that because you know several like recent genetic studies in like 2018 2019 basically saying that anything they found they did an extensive um actually eDNA study across the southern hemisphere cool. um fin whales populations and effectively found no genetic difference between any of the fin whale species that they were finding. They're all just kind of one subspecies. So they're There's basically saying, like, even if we cause it be something right, similar. even if we were sampling any pygmy animals within this range, they're genetically not different enough for us to be able to tell. Hmm. Um, so yeah, kind of kind of fascinating. A weird one where it's like we're we're kind of at the point of like genetically, this Doesn't has not exist. even been substantiated. Does this even <laughs> exist? And yet it's it's on. You know, it's, you know, we're considered by the Society of Marine Mammalogy, it is still on there as a subspecies, but genetically, 
we can't actually prove that it exists, which is kind of fascinating. And that that goes to like again, folks, like two two things. Where do we delineate a species? Right. What what is it? Is it morphological? Yeah. Is it genetic? Is it both now because we can do genetics? And then at what point of genetics is, does it change? Right. Like there's going to be variation within a population. At what point is it, it? Can we all agree where the line is of this is too much variation to be the same species? <clears throat> I don't think we've agreed upon that yet for many. Um, and then if it is, is there just that that variation? Um, uh, so it, it's and, and and then the second one is how long it takes to be able to confirm one way or the other right so yeah somebody comes up with this so at back in that day they just got put in the list or whatever the, the process was back then um, right but it's still there even though we can't substantiate it so what is the process of, of what it takes to get something removed or added on it, it's it's a process and everybody like has to be multiple lines of evidence and then everybody kind of agrees and then it goes to this taxonomic group that you know decides, I guess, um, I don't know the particulars, but uh, it's just, it's not an easy process. So it may be a mm -hmm. while before we officially, and I think maybe it's harder to take one off once it's on because. Well, especially if you have one example of that animal right. that's the, literally preserved in a natural history museum, like, oh, it's there, look at it, it exists. Right. And maybe it did and it's extinct now. And then that's the only thing we have of it. So it should be there, but right. Yeah. So and again, it, it, I mean, it, it circles back to what you were talking about at the beginning, like with these animals that live in the Southern Ocean in general, or the Southern Hemisphere, um, it's a lot harder to study them in general. So, you know, a lot of it could just be that we just don't have the knowledge or the the research happening to to show us these very rare individuals as often as perhaps they're existing. So who knows? And I think yeah, too, kind of a weird it's, one. A, it's better to be conservative on like, well, if it's already been there, let's leave it there because it might possibly be a thing and not take it right. off prematurely and then be like, oh crap, we got to put it back on there. Right. Yeah, exactly. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, very cool. I mean, I think we, we're, we're, this is a continuing theme again in the Southern Hemisphere. I think many of the animals we've been talking about, um, but, and hopefully the future will know more about them, but um, very, very cool. I just, it, it, that, that one seemed to fit very well with the, with the pygmy right whale today, since we don't know where it fits. And then it's like, does this one even, and then no <laughs> one even exists. I don't know. Right. Crazy. You guys get a bonus weirdo. Look at that. Right? <laughs> two weirdos today, along with the two weirdos today that are giving you the hesitations here. Uh, um, <laughs> so uh, one final thing, just real quick, we're going to do, um, we, a couple of weeks ago, or maybe it might've been a couple of months at this point, uh, we had posted, if you had questions for us and we did have one come in. Um, and if they asked, what was our favorite odontocete? So tooth whale, dolphin, or porpoise. Um, so we're going to hopefully do that quickly. <laughs> do you have one? It's a hard question because we love- I was going to say. It's really hard to pick one and you feel like you're betraying it. Yeah. So. I know. It's, I know. I, I feel like it's, it's, I mean, I hate to be cliche, but I'm going to say killer whale. Oh man, you betrayed! I know, betrayed I know, us. I know. But I like, from like, I yeah. And I mean, I also like again, like where I where I grew up, when we got to see killer whales, like in like right below my house, and just I mean, they're they're one of the ones that for me was pivotal in piquing my interest in marine mammals in general because they're just so intense. So I mean, and I think like they're just. They, yeah, they are. But I think for me, like just the, and again, obviously all, all cetaceans are intelligent, but just, there's something about killer whales and orcas in general, but just their, their hunting style. And I've kind of always been drawn to top predators. So for me, like, 
you know, I've always kind of said, if I didn't study marine mammals, I probably would have studied wolves. Like there is something that just, I just find really fascinating about the, that sort of strategy that they have. Um, and just their intense, uh, social bonds and things like that. Like it just, again, hate to be a cliche, but that probably, again, it's a hard, it's a hard question because I think they're all really, really cool, but I would have to probably go with that as being like, just simply because it was so instrumental in and getting you yeah getting me fascinated and like really captivated in this world and like okay this is like I I have to study these things so yeah and you're definitely not alone like that is I know that's what I'm saying I hate to be the cliche person but like I like orcas but it's the it's the gateway citation for other yeah kind of that (laughs) bottle of dolphins I feel like are the two the two funnels (laughs) yeah pretty much how about you so um, I'm going to uh, cop out a little bit and not be able to choose one um, because I feel like with Harbor Porpoises, it, I, feel betra- I, I feel like I'm betraying them if I don't say they're my favorite because it's what we study, right? Um, and I feel like that should just be implied always for people when they ask us this question. So the implied right. answer is always just Obviously, Harbor Porpoise, yeah. always to all yeah. questions, but, <laughs> but beyond that. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, some of that's just because we, it's, it's so exciting to be at a place where we're learning all these new things that because we just don't know much about them at all. So everything is new and exciting and we get to really contribute to the, um, the conservation of them because we're learning all these new things about them. So, um, and they're super cute and they're, and I, I am always a, a, a someone for the underdog, um, you know, so they've, they've been ignored. So I like to be the, the cheerleader and promoter. Um, so Harbor Porpoises. And then this is where I'm going to betray myself um, in having to choose another one, a dolphin in particular, uh, I have to go with probably with spotted dolphins uh, because that's what I studied in the Bahamas. Now, I also had to be the the promoter for the underdog of the bottlenose dolphin there because everybody loves the spotted dolphins, but you know not as much the bottlenose dolphins. So I was always like, but the bottlenose dolphins are cool too. And, you know, so I feel a little bit bad choosing the spotted dolphins. It's <laughs> okay. They understand. But they are like just what I got to experience there about basically living with them in their world on their terms, as is the, the motto for the Wild Dolphin Project. Um, getting to spend time with them, know those individuals, and and be with them all summer basically, and see what they do and learn learn about their social structure. You know that was my whole work. So um, that is just too much part of my life to 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 say no to. <laughs> they're just yeah. they're just really. Uh, they're just really cool too and they're really friendly and, and um just really interesting to to see so harbor porpoises mm-hmm. and spotted dolphins with the side of bottomless dolphins probably is where i'm at i will say that the spotted dolphins are also a gateway into cytology because that was i definitely had a bunch of spotted dolphin posters on my wall mostly because they are like the beauty like there's so many beautiful images of spotted dolphins and mm-hmm. they're like the, the water that they swim in is like those beautiful crystal clear you know caribbean waters and yep. Uh, I had so I had so many posters on my wall of bottle or uh, spotted dolphins. So you know they were they were they were in there. Yeah, they're they're influential, photogenic. Like their yeah. spot patterns yeah. and stuff, and they ch- and they change over over time. So they're born like baby bottlenose dolphins, and then they gain spots as they get older. So by the time they're mm-hmm. older, they're like covered with these mottled spots and everything. And so yeah, they, they are, are beautiful. Very, yeah, they're very beautiful. And of course, the blue waters certainly do help. But it, yeah, I do want to remind everybody: it's not always that pretty when you're out there. <laughs> Those are the good days, <laughs> but in the end, yes, still very beautiful. Um, yep. So uh, I hope you liked the answers to our questions there, even if we didn't fully pick one out. Um, but those are our uh, kind of favorite Odonna seats and why. So if you guys have questions for us, feel free to reach out on social media. Uh, we'd love to answer more of those on the podcast. 
Uh, don't forget that you can also subscribe to the podcast and get bonus episodes and ad-free. Uh, all the episodes are ad-free if you subscribe a paid subscription. Uh, and you get bonus episodes about, uh, we just did one for field updates and other workshops we go to, and you're going to learn about each of us and how we got to where we are. Um, so lots of cool stuff to find on there. And the, um, the subscription, the paid subscription really helps us as it um, helps us do more of these podcasts and education and continue our research. Uh, so funding is a, a difficult thing at best to, <laughs> to get. So we appreciate your support. Um, and you can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, keep an eye out on the Instagram stories for the next Marine Mammal Highlight poll. Um, and that's where you can reach us to ask us for questions or, or tell us that you want to hear something, um, some topic that you want us to talk about as well. So um, with that, we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. This was brought to you by Pacific Mammal Research, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. To learn more about the species we discuss, check out our blog. Head to our website, www.pacmam.org, that's P-A-C-M-A-M.org, to check it out. Also, help us continue providing fun and educational content like this by donating today. Your help is how we can continue to do our work and share it with you. Thanks.